All right, let us begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask you to be with us. May your Holy Spirit inspire us so that we truly understand some of the, not just some, but all of the, the workings and the writings of Luke's Gospel, chapters 8, 9, and 10, which we'll be discussing tonight. Help us to really open our minds and our hearts to see the progression of the events in these three chapters that lead up to the beginning of Christ's passion, death, and resurrection. So we ask your blessing on our efforts. We just give you praise and thanksgiving in all things, in Jesus' name. I hope all of you have gotten the handout for tonight that's on the back table, particularly this one. There is so much detail in these three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, that unless you group them together by subject, you're not going to truly understand what Luke is getting at. And so what I've done is I've taken them in the order in which they appear in your booklet or in the Bible, but I have divided them into four groups, actually five, but I've left out some of the miracle stories because we've covered the idea of the miracle stories earlier. And so for the sake of time, I've left those out. But all of the others are in here. As you can see from the reference column, they are in order. But going across, they're divided by primary or major subject matter. That is parables, discipleship, the transfiguration of Christ, and his prediction of his passion. And what I'm trying to get you to see as you read these across, and we'll go through each one of these briefly tonight. I'm not going to reread them, but we'll talk about them. Okay. Is that the parables, parables are a short story that is made up by the speaker, in this case Christ himself, for the purpose of making a point. The reason being is that many of the people to whom he was speaking were uneducated or some were illiterate and the common culture developed storytelling as a way of communicating, particularly in educating. And so stories, small brief stories, even though they were made up, are often used in this culture and of course, even in today at times, uh, to educate. So a parable will be a short story made up with one point, one major point in it, for the education of the hearer. Alright? So what we have is four or five short, uh, five actually, uh, parables which we'll go through so we can explain how this goes. And then most of chapter 9 and part of chapter 10 is devoted to the subject of discipleship in a very broad sense. And that is what I really want to focus on tonight. Because all of us who claim to be 
followers of Christ should also claim to be a disciple of Christ. We often kind of shun that word, or we think of the disciples of Christ as being somebody lived 2,000 years ago, and it doesn't pertain to us today. Uh Uh-uh. If you are a follower of Christ and truly profess him to be your Lord, then you are a disciple of Christ. And if you are a disciple of Christ, then you got to live that way. Then, Christ knowing that human beings are always, even today as well as 2,000 years ago, always kind of want to know, well, what's in it for me? If I'm going to be a disciple of Christ, kind of, what's the bottom line? What am I going to get to? Where am I going with this? And so he gives us a couple brief glimpses of what God in glory is all about. And that's what the transfiguration is. And then, instead of the apostles being elated, of course they were here in this scene, but elated over that, he kind of throws cold water on it by saying, wait a minute, the Messiah, you know, the anointed one, the son of man, as he would call himself, isn't riding in Jerusalem on a shining white horse with white armor and gold and all of that stuff. He's going to suffer and die, be put to death by his own people, like all the prophets were. All right. So it's sort of deflating in a way, but there is a definite progression in Luke's efforts here um, to give you this information. Okay. So, with that in mind, is there any questions that anyone has right now offhand? Yes, yes. Discipline, uh, discipleship, uh, study, pupil, it all comes from the one root word in Latin, discipula, okay, which means uh, a pupil or a student of some teacher. And in this case, we are all students of Christ or followers of Christ. But in, in the Greek sense of the word education or student or pupil, the pupil learns as much as he can so that he can, he or she can take up and follow the master after the master is gone, he can then continue the mission. And that is really what a disciple is here, is that we should be able to continue the mission of Christ on earth. Not working miracles, not being transfigured in glory, but just doing the everyday things that we were given the talent to do. That's what discipleship means. And of course, the word discipline comes in because it requires self-control, which is discipline, and it often requires self-denial. And that's in Luke's Gospel as well. Okay. Yes, Anna? I have a question. All right. What Anna is saying here is that the wording here 
doesn't appear to make sense. I'm, I'm being blunt, but that's what you're saying. All right. But it, it does in this, if you think about it, a parable, as I said, is a story with a point hidden within the context. What Jesus is saying here, and Anna just read this part that's on page 55, uh, verse 10. He answered, knowledge of the mystery of the kingdom has been granted to you, meaning you disciples. But to the rest, they are made known through parables, so that they may look but not see, and hear but not understand. In other words, Christ is not giving this to them bluntly and explaining it to them. He's putting it within the context of a story so that they spend time thinking about it. The whole objective is to give a person time to think about all of the ramifications of this particular story in order to uh, see what the point is. Now, let's hold that for a moment. And we, when we get further back in uh, chapter 9 or early part of chapter 10, I'll give you a good example. All right? I hope it's in those chapters. I sometimes... Let's go on, but hold that particular uh, thought, and we'll get to it later. All right? What I want to do is talk about the parables, as we have been doing, and the parable of the sower, which is on page 56 here. Remember last week we talked about the story of the, the parable of the wineskins, about pouring new wine into old wineskins and how that was not uh, a wise thing to do because new wine ferments and expands through the fermentation and eventually would spoil or rip or ruin old wineskins. So new wine has to be poured into new The whole parable is not really about wine. It's about a disciple learning new ways of accepting new information and changing. So what that parable said is that a person accepting the teachings of Christ has to rethink their concepts of what faith and religion is all about. Coming from a Jewish background, that would constitute major changes. And of course, they said at the end of that parable that a lot of people thought that the old wine was good simply because it's easier to deal with the old stuff because that's what you're accustomed to than it is to change. I'll give you a little example. I heard several sources tell me that drinking green tea was supposed to be very good for medicinal purposes as well as a few other things. And so I'm trying. But it's terrible. It tastes terrible. So what I'm doing is I'm mixing green tea and black tea and then little by little I'm trying to wean myself off of the black tea part of it, okay? Same kind of concept. you got to change your way of thinking. And that is what the essence of this is here. This whole idea of the, the parable of the sower 
is not really talking about farming. What he's talking about is how the the words, uh, the meaning, the message of Christ and his teachings land on some people and bounce right off and, you know, there the twain shall meet. Other people, they'll take it for a while and they'll go, eh, well, uh, maybe I'll try, maybe I won't. And then other people just soak it all in and think it's wonderful. So it's a whole idea of accepting the message of Christ. Remember, these people were Jews. They were good, honest Jews. And they were subject to the law, which was so overburdensome that they really couldn't move or breathe without offending or or disobeying the law. And Christ says, that's not what it's all about. It's all about living and helping your neighbor and loving God for the goodness that God is and what he has given you. That's what it's all about. But you see, that was such a tremendous change for these good Jewish people that a lot of them just couldn't accept that. So that's what this whole idea of the sower of the seed is. Okay. Now, the parable of the lamp. And I'm going to add salt in here too because in Matthew's gospel, Matthew brings them together in chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. You all heard that phrase. And then a few verses down, he goes, you are the light of the world. All right. So what happens in this case is that if you are truly a disciple of Christ, you've got to live it that way. You've got to show it. You can't hide it. So you are the lamp. You can't put your faith under cover and go around incognito as a as a Christian and live uh, in a secular world as some of these people do. They try to uh, straddle the the bar of uh, well, they try they just straddle the fence, so to speak. Uh, and of course, we've all aware of many politicians and uh, entertainment people and sports people who profess to be great Catholics, but then they will stand up for whatever is politically correct at the moment. Um, there's one politician that I always say will jump on any bandwagon regardless of which way it's going. Uh, and that kind of describes a lot of politicians who say they are Catholic, and yet they'll stand up for all kinds of things that the Catholic Church in Christ has condemned. So how can they be or profess to be one thing and act in a professional way in another? You can't do that. If you're going to be a disciple of Christ, you've got to live it that way. And so the light of the world is exactly that. You can't hide your faith under a basket or a box or whatever. Salt of the earth is the same thing. Salt has many, many properties. Some good, some if used to excess or incorrectly can be very damaging. 
all right? But what's the one thing that salt is mostly used for in everyday households? In food, yes. In flavoring food. In other words, to bring out the best of the food, the taste, the flavor, all right? The aromas and fragrances, whatever, all right? To bring out the best. So if you are the salt of the earth, your job is then to not only bring out the best in yourself, but help others to bring out the best part of them for the benefit of others. And that goes on and on. So they kind of go together. And as I said, in Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 5, he puts them together. And it is used here uh, in two different places. But that's the whole idea. Okay. Down in chapter 10, we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay. Why don't we uh, turn to that, chapter 10, verse 29. <clears throat> it starts out, uh, well, actually, it starts with uh, verse 25, the greatest commandment. And this is where one of the Jewish scholars, a Pharisee, no doubt, but we're not certain here, sort of challenged Christ and asked him what was the greatest, um, or no, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus turns this around, knowing that this was a test, and says, well, what is written in the law? And so the scholar says, well, you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart and with your whole being, and with your whole strength and with your whole mind, etc., etc. And Jesus replies, correctly, you have answered correctly. Do this and you shall live, meaning eternal life. Well, that wasn't good enough for this guy. And so he says, well, um, and who is my neighbor? Okay. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus goes on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. You've all heard that many, many times. Why does he take or choose a Samaritan to be the good guy when a Jewish priest and a Levite pass by? The Levite and the priest pass by because this poor guy that got mugged on the street and left for dead looked like he was dead. And for a Jewish person to touch a corpse was uh, a big no-no. Uh, they would be considered unclean and unable to enter the synagogue until they had gone through uh, a certain specific ritual, which, which, which was very time-consuming. All right. So rather than doing all of that, they just kind of ignore this poor fellow on the road and pass by. But a Samaritan who was hated by the Jewish people sees this guy and with compassion picks him up, takes him to an inn, and cleans him up and takes care of him, even pays for his extended stay there. All right? So why would you, Jesus choose in this parable a fictitious story, but it's made to demonstrate who is my neighbor? And 
the story is that the Samaritans were disliked by the Jewish people and the feeling was mutual, of course, because Samaria was in the northern part of Israel. And if you go to the page 167 in the back of your book, it is right about dead center of this page where it says uh, Sychar or Sychar, not Sychard, uh, Mount Gerizim, that is Samaria, okay? Galilee is above it, Jerusalem is below it. The reason being why the Samaritans were so hated by the Jews and vice versa was because back in the 8th century BC, when the king of Assyria overran the northern kingdom of Israel and captured and took off all of its good, educated, qualifying people to Assyria and replaced them with all the jailbirds and the ne'er-do-goods and the poor and uh, whatever. Uh, and those people gradually assimilated into Jewish community as best they could, but never quite picked up the Jewish faith for sure. And so that was sort of uh, something that the Jewish people, the true Jewish people, could not accept. And so they became bitter enemies. Probably none of them could explain that as, even as well as I did, which wasn't that great. But, uh, you know, hatred sometimes is perpetuated by hatred without any true understanding. So Jesus is using this example of an enemy helping this poor guy to make the point of who is my neighbor. The idea is anybody in need is your neighbor, whether you know him or not, or know her or not. Anybody in need is a neighbor. So that is the whole point. But it takes a while to understand that, and it takes a little bit of pondering for you to get that out of this story. Okay? But you've got to go back to the question that the Jewish scholar asked Christ, and who is my neighbor? See, he wanted to pin Jesus down. And Jesus gave him exactly what he was um asking for, but not what he really wanted, okay? And so at the end, Jesus says, now go and do likewise, which of course is what he's telling us as disciples. Whoever is in need, you are obligated to help that person. I did something today that I, uh, that falls into that category, not as uh, dramatic as this, but somebody called me uh, today on the phone and was talking about a, um, a dish that they had for dessert uh, or for dinner, and uh, it was a meat dish, and they said, and we have plenty left over for lunch tomorrow. And I said, okay, I wasn't thinking about tomorrow being Ash Wednesday, uh, so I let it go, and after the conversation, and I hung up, uh, I thought about it. I thought, well, what should I do? That person obviously forgot that tomorrow is a fast day 
fast and abstinence day for everybody. All right. So I went and called them back and I said, gee, I enjoyed your the conversation and the comment you made and so forth. But by the way, uh, tomorrow is Ash Wednesday. And they said, oh, yeah, we know we're going to go to church in the morning. I said, it's also a fast day. You could have heard their face drop. You know? <laughs> they were looking forward to lunch already. <laughs> so, but I thought, I can't leave that just there. Uh, and it's up to them to do what they want. But at least I think I have to remind them. Okay, so I spoiled their lunch tomorrow, but um, so be it. Okay, you got the idea of what parable, parables are all about, all right? William, you had a question? I'm sorry? Oh, give it to the homeless? I don't know. You'll have to go and ask my neighbor, all right? Yes? Probably nothing, uh, because he wouldn't understand it. But then again, certainly doesn't mean heaven. No, but you see, it's a statement that makes a person think, and that's what he was trying to get the Jewish scholar to do, is to think, and that's the whole objective of parables, is to get a person to think and reason out what the point is that is being made. Okay. All right. Any other questions on parables? All right, because I really want to get into discipleship. Uh, as you can see, there's a long, long list um, of references in both uh, chapters 9 and 10. Well, actually, there's even one in chapter 8, um, two of them in chapter 8 for that matter. Women followers. Let's go back to the first part of chapter 8. Now, I hope it doesn't surprise you that even in this society, this culture, where women, uh, men and women could really not meet on the street, even if they knew each other, it was sort of a cultural custom that men do not speak to women uh, openly on the street. Um, but yet, Jesus had a number of people following him. And obviously, if he's going to preach all day and spend quite a bit of time in prayer, he had to have somebody that would offer to fix meals for them and tend to clothing and, you know, so forth. Uh, all of the little needs of anyone and everyone. So... To have women follow along was not unusual. There were groups of this kind that were quite common. And women would follow them and take care of those needs from their own uh, financial resources. Page 100, this is more on discipleship. It says, great crowds were traveling with him. So these great crowds needed somebody First of all, to fix meals and provide uh, for um, night accommodations and so forth. And so 
that's what uh, this was all about. The women would take care of those needs, all right? And he mentioned several of them up above. But this is a form of discipleship. They did it because they recognized Jesus as being a prophet, if not God himself. And so that's part of the idea of discipleship. Discipleship doesn't mean that you have to, uh, well, for example, do what I'm doing, sit up, standing up here in front of a, a group of eager listeners and uh, teaching. Uh, it means several different kinds of contributions. And we talked about this briefly last week. Everyone in God's plan of salvation is given some aspect of that plan as his or her role. And we must all learn what our little contribution is. We cannot live solely for ourselves. There is always something that we can do. And that really adds to the whole idea and definition of discipleship, a portion of God's plan of salvation. Let's go over to Jesus and his family, which is on page 56. This bothers a lot of people, this particular statement. It says, Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but were unable to join him because of the crowd. He was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they wish to see you. He said to them in reply, and I'm quoting from Matthew, Matthew's gospel, Who are my mother and my father? and my brothers and sisters. So those who hear the word of God and keep it. In other words, he's not putting down his parents. He's not putting down uh, or acknowledging that the people with his mother are his biological brothers and sisters. It's the whole idea of whoever would travel together and obviously, we're not talking necessarily about Nazareth. We're talking about somewhere else in Galilee. And Jesus' mother, Mary, would never travel alone. And so she would have um, a couple of women and perhaps a couple of men uh, with them so that they would travel <coughs> together. And those people would be considered brothers and sisters, not biological, but had a common bond. And this was very common. And yet some people take this phrase literally as if Jesus had biological brothers and sisters. Now, the statement or the explanation that uh, this writer of this commentary uh, gives is that St. Joseph, no doubt, uh, says that he was probably married, he was an older person, his wife died, and he had children by that marriage, and they would be uh, considered half-brothers and sisters of, of Jesus. Well, to me, that's a stretch, okay? That's speculating because there's no indication whatsoever. Tradition does say that Joseph was an older man. Uh, 
But how much older, we have no idea. We don't really have any great idea of how old Mary was when she and Joseph came together as husband and wife. But the culture tells us that it was not unusual for girls in their early teens to marry, and it was not unusual for them to marry older men. The marriages were almost always arranged. In this case, of course, they were arranged by God himself, and uh, that was communicated through the angels. But whether he was married before, we have no way of knowing, and so it's a speculation. I would prefer to believe that these were either close relatives or close neighbors, very close friends who traveled together with the mother of God. But Jesus is making a point here. Whoever does the will of my father, the will of God, he then or she is my mother or my brothers or my sisters. Let's do the mission of the twelve. First part of chapter 9, page 62. He summoned the twelve and gave them power and authority over all demons uh, to cure diseases. And he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God, to heal the sick. And he said to them, take no, take nothing for your journey. And this was not uncommon. We had journeyman preachers in those days. And it was very common for them just to show up in town. And there were plenty of people that would invite them in to stay. It was a privilege. It was part of the culture. And it was an honor to have traveling preachers stay at a given home. It was felt that that home was always blessed. So this was not unusual. Uh, what Jesus is telling these 12 are to live off of the, the goodness of the, uh, and the hospitality of where they were staying and preach. And if they didn't accept uh, your preaching, then kind of shake the dust off of your feet and go on. Today, when we enter somebody's house, even though we might have a new pair of shoes on, we usually kind of dust them off at the bottom. That's part of our culture. Uh, shaking the dust off of a, your feet at somebody who does not accept you uh, graciously is kind of the same way in a negative form. Okay, So it's, it's not a, a big deal. But let's go over to the next page. And it says, the return of the 12 and feeding the 5,000. Uh, before, let's, let's back up a moment. There's one thing I want to ask you and see if you can tell me. A little riddle here. He summoned the 12 and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. What did he not give them to the power to do. Yes, Dave? No, that's important, though. I mean, I didn't think about that, but you're right. But forgive sin, yes. He did not give them to power to forgive sin. Dee said the power to baptize, and I never thought about that, but you're right, it's not mentioned. But more importantly, the power to forgive sin. 
Why? Remember earlier when Jesus cures the man's hand, the guy that was crippled, he was lowered down through the roof, and Jesus cured his hand, or cured, uh, no, he said, your sins are forgiven you. And they grumbled and griped and said, you know, only God can, can forgive sin. And of course, that was correct. But if God gives the power to heal, to cure, to teach, etc., why at this point in time does he not give the power to forgive sin? See? He hasn't died yet. That's correct. Yes. He hasn't died, and that's the whole objective for this journey. He has to die for our sins. And that hasn't happened yet. He eventually does give the church, the men of the church, the power to forgive sin, but it is after his death and resurrection. Okay? Very important point. And though I had a a rather, let's say, heated debate with a priest over that, uh, I stood my ground and I said, all right, you know, he just went on and on and on how wrong I was. And I said, fine. You tell me in the whole Bible where Jesus gave him the power to forgive sin before the resurrection, and I'll change my mind. That's right. Yes, very important point. Yes, thank you. You're right. Uh, because, as they said earlier, only God for, can, can forgive sin. If we have these 12 guys running around saying, you know, your sins are forgiven, without any outward sign of authority, then uh, that kind of waters down everything God kind of stands for. So it had to be after the crucifixion and resurrection. Okay. And then it does happen. Okay. Well, you just made the point. They were so, so confused by that time, they probably didn't even bother to ask. Return of the twelve and the feeding of the five thousand. He received them back and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And he healed those who needed to be... Well, I'm ahead of myself there. When the apostles returned, they explained to him what they had done. He took them and withdrew to a private... Uh, withdrew in private to a town called Bethsaida. Bethsaida is on the on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. The crowds, meanwhile, learned of this and followed him. He received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who needed to be cured. As the day was closing, drawing to a close, the twelve approached him and said, Dismiss the crowd. And we know this whole story of dismissing the crowd so um, they could go off and get something to eat. And Jesus is saying, well, you give them something to eat. And these guys say, well, you know, all we got here is a couple loaves and some fishes. Um, that's not going to feed all of those. Now, this is often called the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, I'm a heretic in this regard. 
I think 5,000 is way over-exaggerated. I think some little monk, uh, when he was translating this or copying this from one copy to another, just said, well, we'll just stick another zero on the end of this, you know. Because when you think of the population and the area and the idea that they only counted men, you know, that could multiply at least by two. Uh-uh. The whole area could not provide for 10,000 people moving to hear one preacher. It just doesn't add up. But it doesn't make, it doesn't change the story any. The whole story is a prefiguring or a preview of our Eucharist. If Jesus can feed 500 or 5,000, makes no difference, out of a few loaves of bread and a few fish, why can he not give spiritual food like he did manna in the desert and feed thousands upon thousands upon thousands every day with the Holy Eucharist? Um, it's really no difference for him. The difference is for us to be able to accept that. And that's what it's all about. So the feeding of the 5,000, or in another place, it'll be a feeding of the 4,000. Same idea. It's a preview of the Eucharist. I think that that was already taken into consideration when Jesus asked them, how many loaves do you have? And we know from the story, which is in three of the Gospels, that there was just a boy there that had, you know, one place that says seven loaves and another place that says five loaves, but what difference does that make? The whole idea of, of the five and the two add up to seven, which is one of the sacred numbers of Jewish culture. Well, what, uh, you, all right, assuming that you are correct, what did they have left after they all finished eating as much as they wanted? And then what was collected afterwards? Hmm? If you don't think that that was a miracle, what is? You see, they had a lot more. If you go down to verse 17, they all ate and were satisfied. And when the leftover fragments were picked up, they filled 12 wicker baskets. Either way, it's a miracle. Okay? Either way. <clears throat> Let's go over to the conditions of the discipleship. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Well, you'd be surprised the people that, when I've asked in the past to explain this, they're totally dumbfounded because they think that everybody needs to have a cross, you know, like this. Nice wood, just came from Home Depot, etc. Barcodes on the end. No, Christ doesn't mean carrying a wooden cross. He means that all of us have our normal aches and pains and irritations and frustrations and uh, 
neighbors or family that we have to take care of, that we would rather not, and so on and so forth. Um, we have our daily crosses. Some With some people, they are permanent crosses that they have to bear of health of themselves, poor health of themselves or someone else, and they have to constantly bear with those. <clears throat> if you handle those as a disciple of Christ in the way the Good Samaritan helped that poor guy that was mugged on the street, that is part of discipleship. That is part of following God. That is part of your carrying your cross on a daily basis and offering that without grumbling and griping and bothering other people or complaining to other people about it. That is what discipleship is all about. Now, I'm not saying that discipleship is looking for penance or looking for some way to suffer. You know, it used to be years ago, uh, the Sarah Bernhard treatment, I've got to suffer to be a good artist. Uh-uh, that's not what discipleship is all about. You don't suffer for the sake of suffering. If you do, there's something not quite right upstairs. Because suffering, regardless, is not fun. It is not something you take pleasure in. But it is something that we all go through at one time of our life or another. And in rather than unloading it on other people, as is often the case, we accept it and offer it to God as part of our daily cross. Okay? And that's what this means. You pick up your cross daily and follow Christ. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. In other words, if you take the pains of avoiding this person and avoiding that situation, avoiding something else, simply because you want to be free of all those responsibilities and you won't handle this responsibility that is given you, then you're going to lose your life. And he's talking about spiritual life, not physical or earthly life. Remember, most of Christ's teachings are on a spiritual level, not an earthly level. But quite often, in order to get that across, he's got to use earthly words. Okay. What profit is there for one to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit himself or his soul, as it says in Matthew's Gospel? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes to his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now what does all that mean? Remember we talked about the kingdom of God starting here on earth, when you accept Christ into your heart, into your mind and lifestyle, and follow him in that regard, that's when the kingdom of God starts. And so 
a lot of people will not then taste death until that begins for them. And thank God. And that, of course, goes back to the story of how John the Baptist was a great person, but anyone who entered the kingdom of God was greater than he. Because John the Baptist did not have the opportunity to be baptized into the Christian church and receive the Holy Eucharist. An argument arose among the disciples about which of them was the greatest. Jesus realized, realized the intention of their hearts and took a child and placed it by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you is the one who is the greatest. And it goes back to what we were just talking about, serving others. Serving others in one way or another. Not necessarily serving in the way of waiters or waitresses, but helping others to see the light, spiritual light of day. That is what makes you great. For example, the primary title of the Pope, you know, they have several titles. Kings and queens also have several titles. But one of the great titles of the Pope, and he writes this on most of his documents, and this is not just the present Pope, but Popes for many generations past, the servant of the servants of God. Meaning that he is the Pope of all the, the bishops and all of the priests who are the servants of God through the church. And he is the least of all of them uh, because of his calling. So he is the servant of the servants of God. So it is not wise to want to be called the greatest. That's not what God is looking for. <coughs> the would-be followers of God are Jesus. Okay. Are you, do you see what I'm trying to get at here? The way that um, this is set up and the, what, the way I've sort of rearranged some of these because it's important that you understand how this progression takes place. Parables are to attract followers of Christ. All right? Then those followers become disciples. Out of this group of disciples came apostles. But that didn't change them any. It just gave them more work to do. Some of those apostles, not all of them, but some of them were privileged to see the transfiguration of Christ in his glory. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. But then they all learned about the prediction of the passion. And that's how I group this to see, to show you that progression there. Okay. Yeah. Well, remember, if you go back to the story of John the Baptist, 
he was very curious and liked what John the Baptist said. And he really regretted giving Salome his promise of anything because he liked Herod. Now, he's sort of intrigued by Christ also, but, you know, was a little more cautious about getting too close. That's as good of an explanation as I can give you. Yeah, okay. Uh, let's go on to the... As they were proceeding on their journey, now, we're getting into this area that starts on the, started on the previous page here, uh, chapter 9, verse 49 with a departure for Jerusalem, okay? Now, they're, they're not that far away geographically, but they're still a long way from the mission being fulfilled. And what Jesus has been doing is preaching primarily in northern Israel, in the province of Galilee and a little bit in Samaria, okay? Because those kind, those people in that area were a little more open to new ideas and new concepts. This, if you go way back in uh, Greek history, was conquered by the Seleucid kings, and a lot of the Greek culture and concepts were sort of forced into the people of the northern part of Israel. And so they were much more open-minded, and that is why Jesus did most of his preaching in that area. But his mission, the primary focus of his mission, was to eventually offer himself as the divine sacrifice, that is the crucifixion on the cross, and that to be accepted by the Father was recognized through the trans, uh, through the uh, resurrection. So this journey now is the heading south from Galilee to Jerusalem. And what you do is you have to go down geographically and then back up. Because as it said, the city of Jerusalem is almost a thousand feet above sea level. But the rest of Israel is below sea level. So you have a geographic valley in there that you have to uh, cross. But what we're really talking about is that he is heading now to his eventual end of his mission, which is his death and resurrection. And so that's what this journey is referring to, not a journey uh, like a vacation or a road trip, it is a journey towards the end of his life. Okay. Uh, let's see, I lost my head. Uh, no place. Okay. He wished to justify... I'm sorry. What page are we on? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. As they were proceeding on their journey. Now the word journey in this case is as I just explained. Someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus answered him, The foxes have dens and the birds of the sky have nests. 
but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. Now, how do you know what that means? That sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? Somebody say, well, I'll follow you, Joe. And he says, yeah, the birds of the air and so forth and so on. What he's doing is he, he's quoting. He's quoting from Psalm 84. Right? And Psalm 84 is known <coughs> as a psalm where the psalmist is extolling the grandeur of the temple. Okay. And Jesus is really talking about not the temple, but heaven. And that is what he's saying. Now, you might say, well, gee, that's all Greek to me. Um, no, it's Jewish. But During this culture, People use quotations from scripture to explain or like parables to sort of hide or emphasize a point that they're trying to make. Okay. So it was common for Jewish people to quote something from Jewish scripture and almost everybody who was educated would understand where that came from and what it meant. And so these people would understand when Jesus says, the foxes have dens and the birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head, meaning he had no particular uh, permanent abode or house that he lived in. He went from town to town. Okay, And so the person that says, I will follow you, had to be able as a disciple to accept that. Well, some did and some didn't. And another said, Jesus said to another, follow me, but he replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. Now that sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? You'd say, well, Jesus, who was all full of love, would he say something like that? Well, you got to stop and think again. In the terms of the culture, a, father, a firstborn son could not leave the family home until the father had died, whether it was yesterday or not for 10 years from now, because he was committed to take care of the father and then follow in the father's footsteps. He could then move. But he couldn't move before that. That was part of the culture. And that is what this fellow is saying. So you kind of have to understand that in order to get what is going on here. And Jesus saying, well, let the dead bury their dead. He doesn't necessarily mean physically dead. He means spiritually dead. And what this connection is, is if the person that says, I'll follow you, but i got to wait till my father dies, that means he doesn't have, doesn't have the faith in Christ in order to give up all of that. Remember, it said earlier, in order to be a follower of Christ, you had to give up father and mother and so on and so forth. Well, this person apparently doesn't have the faith and the trust in Christ as God to do that. So, let the dead bury the dead means let the spiritually dead 
or those who have no faith take care of their own, whether it's today, yesterday, or ten years from now. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to my family at home. And Jesus said, no one who sets a hand to the plow and looks back to what was left behind is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, you can't worry about the past. You have to head straight ahead. Okay. And that goes, again, not only for physical things, but spiritual things. So many people get religion, but they're so bogged down with spiritual baggage of past sins or past poor lifestyle, whatever. They, they just feel that they can never measure up. They can never actually get rid of the past and move on. Well, Christ said, yes, you can. I will help you. You can't do it by yourself, but I can help you. And then we move on together. The mission of the 72. <laughs> Beginning of chapter 10. Like sending out the 12, he now takes 70 or 72 of his disciples. Remember, this was a large group of people. Large meaning maybe 100, 200, something like that. He calls out 70 or 72. Nobody is quite sure, and they use the word sort of interchangeably. Some places it's 70, others it's 72. Don't worry about the exactness. But he takes these people and commissions them in the same way as he did the 12, and he sends them out in pairs to preach and teach and cure and heal, etc. Not to forgive sin. Okay. And now, later, they come back glowing uh, over what, uh, if you go to the next page, 74, it says, the 72 returned rejoicing. And the Lord said, uh, the Lord, even the demons are subject to us because of your name. And Jesus said, I have observed Satan fall like lightning from the sky. Behold, I have given you the power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and upon the full force of the enemy, and nothing will harm you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice because the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Anybody have a problem with that? I'm sorry, I didn't get that, Bob. It's an awful lot of people for a tiny little area. Uh, yes, but if they go out in, in twos, you know, 36, 36 teams. No, really, there's, you see, Israel was much larger at that time than it is today. It included both sides of the Jordan River, where the country of Jordan is today, and part of Syria, and part of Lebanon. So it was much bigger than it is today. Yes, Dee? Oh. Yes, yeah. 
yeah, Dee mentions that in the footnotes of her uh, Bible, 70 was the number of known nations surrounding uh, Israel. Well, there's, it's anybody's guess as to why, okay? Uh, even the fact that being 70 is 10 times the sacred number 7 that we talked about early, earlier. Uh, and 72 could be t uh, 12 times the sacred number of 7. So, no, that couldn't be right. Uh, is, uh, is, no, 12, 72 would be 6 times 12. All right. And there again, how that arrived, God only knows. And it's not a big deal, so let's not worry about it. But I'll give you a little interesting point. Up until Pope Paul VI, yeah, 1960, or thereabouts, changed the number of allowed cardinals from 72 to an unlimited number. For centuries, the Pope, out of tradition to this particular incident and number, would never consecrate more than 72 cardinals. And that was the limit for centuries. But Pope uh, Paul VI changed that. Um, and, you know, it's one of those church things again. It wasn't even the law, it was just tradition. So church tradition can be changed by the church. Uh, and now we have something like almost 200 cardinals. Not all of them are active, uh, but there are still 200, close to 200 cardinals living. Okay. All right. Let's, let's go on. <clears throat> what I'd like to do, because we're running short of time, I think you get the point that I'm trying to make about discipleship. Let's move to the transfiguration of Christ. First of all, let's go to the story of calming of the seas, which is in chapter 8, verse 22. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and said to them, let us cross to the other side of the lake. So they set sail, and while they were sailing, he fell asleep. A squall blew up over the lake, and they were uh, taking in water and were in danger. They came and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. He awakened and rebuked the wind and the waves, and they subsided, and they were calm. Then he asked them, Where is your faith? But they were filled with awe and amazement, and said to one another, who then is this who commands even the winds and the sea, and they obey him? Jesus, in this scene, is trying to get the apostles to see a little of who he really is. Up till this point, he had been working miracles, he had been teaching through parables, he had been teaching through narratives, but now he's beginning to show them who he really is, the Son of God, okay? And God is the commander of all nature, okay? Now, if we go over to the transfiguration, which is in chapter 9, verse uh, 
42, I think. Verse uh, 28, the transfiguration of Christ. Page 66. <clears throat> About eight days later, after he had said this, now I don't know because we're not talking in order here, the conditions of discipleship. Actually, they fit very closely together, as you can see. Uh, he took Peter, James, and John, sort of the favored three out of the twelve, and went up the mountain to pray. Next week, we're going to talk a lot about prayer because like discipleship tonight, a lot of the teachings for next week center around prayer. While he was praying, his face changed in appearance and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were conversing with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, his meaning Jesus' exodus, that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and his companions had been overcome by sleep, but becoming fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As they were about to part from him, Peter said to Jesus, Peter always sticks his foot in his mouth, you know, at the wrong time. Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Well, I don't know what good that would do because Moses and Elijah were dead. But anyways, he did not know what he was saying. And while he was still speaking, a cloud came and cast a shadow over them, and they became frightened. And when they entered the cloud, then the cloud came, and from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my chosen son. Listen to him. And the voice had spoken. Jesus was found alone. They fell silent and did not at that time tell anyone what they had seen. In the other Gospels, Jesus commands them not to tell anyone. Well, I don't know if I'd tell anyone what I saw either. They'd, you know, send the men in little white coats after you. Anyways, but what is happening here? Jesus is God. He has appeared now for over 30 years as a humble man, in like any other man, okay? But now he is transfigured in all of his divine glory to give these three guys a glimpse of who he really is because they are going to be tested as well as he is going to be tested. And they need to be strengthened in order to be able to bear the test that they will have to bear. And so they need something to hang on to. They need to know that there is more to this guy that they are following than just what he is saying and even what he's doing. There's far more to it. They may not understand it. And that's probably why Jesus said, don't talk about it until the Son of Man has been risen from the dead. And then they said, well, what does that mean? You know. But at least they got a glimpse of who he is. Yes, Nobody entered heaven until after 
stuff. Right. Now we got two dead guys <laughs> who are participating in this transfiguration. Yeah. Sharing in the glory of God in, in heaven. It seems to me there's a little conflict going on. You're right. You're right. Now, folks, down the road to peace. There's no way to really respond to that because you're right in your assumption that no one could enter heaven before the death and resurrection of the Son of God. And yet, and I'll give you even uh, uh, another twist to that. Many people believe that Moses was condemned because he doubted God way back at the scene of water coming out of the rock. Okay, And that's why he never entered the promised land. But here we find Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets speaking to God and they're all in divine glory. We have no way to explain that. Well, it's an honest answer anyways. You know. No, they saw pictures. Moses, you know, had a long beard. Yeah. Okay. And if you go to see the great Michelangelo statue of Moses in the Vatican, he's got a horn up here. Or is it two? No, it's just two, isn't it? Yeah. And that's because of a misunderstanding. Uh, and so Michelangelo, when he sculpted this statue, put some horns up there. Well, that's anybody's guess as to what Moses looked like. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I forgot the story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the translation of halo from the Greek to the Latin. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, you get the, the whole idea. Um, Moses obviously is in heaven. Obviously. So is Elijah. Now, maybe there's a chosen few that got somehow into heaven. We have no way of knowing. All right? So I'm not going to give you any flowery answer because there just isn't any. You're right. The premise is that no one entered heaven until <clears throat> the Son of God fulfilled his mission of paying the ransom for sin. But yet, you know, we know two guys snuck in, maybe through the back door somehow. Okay. You <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. All right. Um, I want to go on just with the predictions of the Passion. You can read those here, there's um, actually two main predictions of the Passion, and both of them have to do with just glimpses, very brief glimpses of Christ heading towards his final mission, and that is the Passion, Death, and Resurrection in Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Anyone know why Jerusalem? Because the history of the prophets. And at that time, he was considered a prophet. Many people didn't realize 
until after his death and resurrection that he was God. All right? And many people today still don't accept that. But nevertheless, uh, all of the prophets, all 15 of them, were murdered by their own people in or about Jerusalem. And so it became tradition that the prophets had to die in Jerusalem. And of course, the prophecies about the Messiah all spoke to that as well. So the prophecies, as well as the prophets themselves, all surrounded death in Jerusalem. So what I'd like you to do is kind of go back over all of these readings quickly to see if you can sort of capture this progression here of how things flow. Because remember, as we said in our first meeting, with this diagram of, uh, where is it? Remember this diagram here? All of the books of the Old Testament point to the event of Christ and all of the books of the New Testament take that event of Christ, describe it, and then project it forward through the teach of the writings of Paul and John and so forth <coughs> into their meaning and understanding eventually to the whole idea of eternal salvation. Okay. And so with this and rereading this, see if you can get to see that. And next week we will talk more about that progression as we go along. Let's end with a prayer. Father, we ask your blessing on us today and as we go forward trying to better understand what we have heard tonight. Help us then to hear what you want us to hear and then to live us live it as you would want us to live it. Help us to open our mind and our heart, not to our own needs and wants, but to the Holy Spirit that comes from you and is trying to lead us in that direction. So we give, we ask, <coughs> we ask your blessing on our efforts. We give you praise and thanksgiving in all things. In Jesus' name.